Yeah, good morning, everyone. Yes, like Jake said, my name's Evan. My wife, my wife Sandy, and I have the joy of leading this church, and I say that every week because it's true. Um, two summers ago, 2019, seems like 10 years ago, but uh, our team was at a retreat in Tahoe, and the Spirit spoke to Sandy's heart. Our church is supposed to go deep dive into 1 Corinthians, which is all about unity in a time of division and submitting to Jesus' definition of sex and marriage and singleness instead of culture's definition of those things. And it's also about laying aside our personal rights in order to love the weak in a culture and a country that tends to idolize personal freedoms. American Corinth are very similar in that way. That's what this letter is about. And so obviously God knew what kind of year 2020 would be and the kind of reality war we would all be facing and the sense of belonging so many people would be longing for. And so our church, here's why I'm saying this. Our church has been rooted in 1 Corinthians this year because the Holy Spirit animated Sandy's wisdom for this moment. I just want to acknowledge that right now. So grateful for her and how God uses her to lead this church. Um, and the Spirit's continuing to give us vision, you guys. So much vision for the future. Can't wait to let you in on it. We're in 1 Corinthians 13. 1 Corinthians 13. If you're at all familiar with the New Testament, you're probably familiar with this chapter. Uh, it's all about the priority of love. And as we were preparing to teach this passage, it struck us, this is why we exist as a church. This is why we practice the way of Jesus. It's to grow as people of love. To grow as people of love. If you're a Christian, if you're a Jesus follower and you're here, just for fun, show of hands, if you're a Jesus follower, great. Yeah, awesome. If you're not, welcome. You're very brave for being here and guest of honor, thankful you're here. But listen, as a Jesus follower, we confess that the crucified, risen Jesus is the king of the world. And our response to that, the only appropriate response to Jesus being king is now for the rest of our lives, we stick together in communities of generosity and hospitality where we do everything Jesus taught, submitting to the scriptures Jesus gave us, and we encourage one another to become more like Jesus, more generous in confessing sin and forgiving it. In other words, we grow in love. This is our response. This is why we exist. This is the only appropriate response to Jesus being king the God of love becoming human for us. The only appropriate response is that we become love for others. And so and someone asked Jesus, what's the greatest command in Matthew 22? Remember his response? Two parts, love God, love people. That's what Jesus boiled down, the greatest command. He even said the entire scriptures hang on those two things, love God, love people. And so the best response to Jesus's authority over us that we could ever express is to grow in our capacity to love. And so to kick us off this morning, I'm gonna just read the whole chapter. Chapter 13, 1 Corinthians. So let it wash over you. Just maybe, I don't know, close your eyes, notice the breeze, notice the trees, the sound of the fountain. Just be very present right now in this moment and let the spirit wash his truth over your mind, body, soul, your whole person. So I'm just going to read 1 Corinthians 13. You ready? If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, 
I'm only a resounding gong or clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It doesn't dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there's knowledge, it'll pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I'm fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. <sighs> yeah. It's incredible. So I, I feel almost in unworthy saying anything after that. <laughs> just the gravity of that. We could just pray and sing doxology and be done, I guess, and go home. But um, so whether you're religious or not, you guys, that's an incredible passage. There's a reason why non-religious people quote this all the time. It's gorgeous and it's true. And you can rip it out of context and do a ton of things with it. And people do, which is beautiful. You guys, it's in weddings all by itself. You just read it, it has power. It's amazing. It's in movies. We just saw a movie this week and we're surprised at the end of the movie, like the ending scene, the preacher reads 1 Corinthians 13 and the town is unified. Some old Academy Award winning movie from the seventies or something. It's all over the place, you guys. But listen, when we read this chapter in in its context, we, we have to remember, this is written to a community of Jesus followers who are not doing this, right? They're failing to love. They're really passionate, passionate about a lot of good things like spiritual gifts and prophecy and even like giving to the poor, but they've forgotten what love looks like. In verses one through three, Paul's like, I can be gifted, speak in tongues. I can claim to hold the office of prophet or whatever. But without love, I am nothing, he says. Your gifts and talents may look great on paper, but it's worthless without love. I can give my money to the poor. I can become a monk and fast and pray and suffer for the gospel or whatever. But if I don't have this thing called love, I gain nothing. Um, so it's like, okay, Paul got it. All you need is love. I hear the Beatles and everything. But Paul's like, no, 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 no. Like, wait a minute. Right away, we have a problem and we have to be honest about this problem. Paul's like, when I say love, I'm talking about something very specific. So it's 2021 now, right? And we're like huge fans of love. 
Like our culture loves love. I love love. It's an amazing thing to talk about, write stories about. But uh, in the English language, the problem is we have this squishy and broad range of meanings for love. I love coffee a lot. I love hiking too. I love Mexican food. This is a great city to be in if you love Mexican food. San Diego is second to none in America, in my opinion. Great place to be. Uh, And I love my family also. I just use the same English word for my preference for pad thai and Mexican food as I did for my commitment to my wife. Same word. And I love my kids. And I love the Mandalorian. Love them. So so if, if the word love in all of those statements means the same thing, then I got serious problems I got to deal with. I'm, I have a problem. I have issues, right? So it's, it's really unhelpful word. It can mean my preference for something, and it can mean a lifelong commitment to Sandy or my coffee addiction or my, spoiler alert, Mandalorian season two episode finale when you have Luke Skywalker cameo onto the screen and the nostalgia levels peak. I love that. That's love. Uh, I feel the feelings in that moment. And it's the same word for all these things. Really, it's a junk drawer word. You just pull it out. It can mean so many conflicting things, even opposite things sometimes. For example, sometimes love means acting on your desires for someone, like making love. And other times, love means sacrificing your desires for someone. Literally the opposite. So do you understand what I'm saying? Love is like this unhelpful junk drawer word. And right away, we have to acknowledge that. Be honest about our love problem or else we'll miss the whole point. We can't just import our cultural or American definition or dating culture definitions of love into 1 Corinthians 13. We have to let Paul speak. So let's allow Jesus to deconstruct our ideas of love. What would that look like? What does Paul mean when he uses the word? This is where Paul's other 13 letters come in really handy. I love that we have all of this context on Paul's thought. He writes about love a lot and he pulls every time he writes about love or agape is the Greek word. Every time he pulls his definition from the life and teachings of Jesus of Nazareth. Unlike in our culture, Love for Jesus and Paul is less about a feeling that happens to you, although there are feelings involved. God has feelings. But primarily, the word love involves action and behavior. Love is something you do in the scriptures. Watch Jesus use the word love and watch Paul use it. It's something you do to people. It's not something you first and foremost feel. And this is important because our feelings about people can shift over time. But for Jesus and Paul, love is something else, okay? And so I've been massively influenced by Tim Mackey, a friend of mine from Portland, uh, on, on this concept and articulating this. And he has this definition. Love, according to Jesus, is a settled purpose to act in a way that elevates the well-being of another person regardless of how they respond to you or what it might cost. This is love. This is love. Sometimes you feel like it. Other times you don't feel like it, but you do it anyway. That's love, according to Jesus and Paul. And so just a sampling from three of Paul's other letters, Galatians, he says this, chapter two, I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. 
So is Paul saying, Jesus feels really awesome about me today. He admires me. I have an admirer and his name's Jesus or whatever. Um, No, that's not what it means. The son of God loved me. How do I know? Look what he did. He gave himself. Paul explains the definition. He gave himself. And then Ephesians 5, same deal. Paul says, follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children and walk in the way of love. I love that. It sounds hippie. Like walk in the way of love. Feels really good. We nod our heads, but what what does that mean? Just as Christ loved us, so Jesus feels good feelings about me today? Is that? No, it's not what it means. Although that's true. I believe God does feel good about us. Absolutely, but that's something else. This is way more concrete. How did God love you? How did Christ do this? Last line of the verse. He gave himself up for us. So all through the scriptures, what, we can do this thing where we point to Jesus's lived behavior and we have a concrete example of love. We don't have to pull from random junk drawer definitions in our culture. We have Jesus's life as the ground zero of love. And then finally, Romans 5, 8. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. How? While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So Paul's not just talking about Jesus anymore. Now it's the Father. It's the Father. So how do we know the Father loves you? How do you know God loves you? Like, what does that even mean? We can put up a billboard on Rosecrans and be like, you are loved, or whatever. Parkhillsd.church, you are loved which is a great thing and it's true. But people, here's the problem. People are gonna just like fill in the definition and be like, oh my gosh, God thinks I'm special. Which he does, but that's not love. It could be like, oh God, like God feels really good feelings and affirms me in everything or whatever. And don't get me wrong, God does do this with his kids. But love specifically is something else. What does it mean that God loves you? Very basically, it means Jesus gave himself for you. He died for you. That's what it means. Jesus died for you. Like if you're new to church here, welcome. This is good news for you. You are welcome to ask questions about what that means. What do you mean Jesus died for me? How does the death of a 2,000-year-old peasant in Israel communicate God's love to me I'm not even Jewish and I'm in San Diego and I'm on the other side of the world. What does that even, how does the cross affect my life? Excellent question. Beginning of the journey with the family of God who is loved by God forever because of this cross. Step into the family of God by asking those questions. This is good news. This is God's love for you. So to recap where we've been, here it is. Question, as followers of Jesus, what, when it comes to our use of the word love, who defines it? Who's life and teaching? Jesus, good. It's, it's definitely the church answer is right on that one. You can say Jesus and it's right. Um, yes, Jesus defines love for us because we're constantly getting our ideas from everywhere else. We're scrambled by, you know, dating and upbringing and rom-com movies, which I'm unashamed to say I love, which is amazing. I love rom-coms. Um, But Jesus is is crystal clear in scripture. As followers of Jesus, 
We have, to, we have to do this, you guys. We have to step back and build everything from the ground up. This is especially true of love. So here's the definition of again. Again, love for Jesus and Paul, a settled purpose, a commitment to act in a way that elevates the well-being of another person, regardless of how they respond to you or what it might cost you. Love. That's love for a Christian. You may not feel like it, but that motivation and action is always what the scriptures mean by love. And it's not just this abstract idea or a theology. We have a person in history we point to and Paul points to, and it's this guy, Jesus, who is God. Uh, so this is what Paul is doing for us here in 1 Corinthians 13. So we're gonna finish today looking at verses four through eight. So next week is verses, the rest of the chapter. This is a two-parter on 1 Corinthians 13. So verses four through eight, you guys, is 16 brief descriptions of what love is and is not. It's about eight negatives, eight positives. The best way to think about this passage I've heard, Tim has this metaphor, two images. I want you to have two images in your mind. Image one is a black hole, black hole. So think back to sixth grade science or whatever, astronomy. And you see the event horizon and light being sucked into this dark hole. Or if you've seen, I don't know, interstellar, you see that black hole thing. Picture that. What is a black hole? I'm not a scientist by, this, <laughs> by any stretch of the imagination. These two examples are very sciencey. And so we have a scientist on our teaching team who he's like, actually, 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 all these little notes on my, <laughs> on my manuscript leading up to this. I'm like, thank you. But um, so a black hole in super basic terms is a region of space-time in our universe with this insane gravitational pull. It just pulls everything it can inward into itself in this infinitely small space. And when it pulls everything in, it ceases to exist. It's just inward. And when you think of black holes, it's like, what universe do we live in where these exist? It's crazy. We live in a universe where there are infinitely small places in space with four billion times the density of our sun and when something gets sucked in, that thing ceases to exist essentially because it's so broken down. Um, this is, we're not in Kansas anymore. This is crazy, but this is the tr reality is stranger than fiction. Anything, and anything that comes within reach of this black hole is gone because of this inward suction. So picture a black hole on one side. Here's another sciencey image. Picture a cell, a living cell, really tiny, still very complex. And basically it's pretty close to the exact opposite of a black hole like in math, right? Picture this one cell designed to duplicate itself and to create more life than there was before. So every time the cell gives away, it doubles and multiplies life. And it's like, if a cell could throw a party, it'd be like, whoa, I just gave everything away and now I'm more, let's do it again, that's amazing. This cell is giving away and seeing fruit. According to the Arizona State U Biology Department, your skin right now is generating like 40,000 cells a minute and leaving them where you are. So after this sermon, you will leave behind a million skin cells. Thank you. You're very generous. But picture a cell. All the movement is outward. And then the black hole, it's inward extremely. Just see those diametrically opposed images in your mind as you read what love is and is not. Ready? 1 Corinthians 13, verse 4. Love is patient. 
What does that mean? Love has time to give. Love gives people time. Opposite of a black hole. Many of you have read John Mark Comer's book, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. All about living the unhurried life of Jesus. And the point of this book in three words, love is patient. A black hole has no patience for other people. It's selfishness instantly. But the key to the spiritual life of Jesus, to becoming a person of love, as Dallas Willard says, it's to ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. In a word, patience. Love has time to give. And I <laughs> talked with Sandy this morning and she's like, this is like your worst one, Evan. We, had, we talk real. We go all the way there. And she, <laughs> I'm like, man, I'm just not patient. She's like, yeah, this is probably, the first one on the list is probably your worst. <laughs> I'm the dad on game night who's, you know, you know that game Trouble with the bubble you pop in the middle? You like pop the bubble, the dice. I'm like, whose turn is it? Just pop it. Like, I want to be the guy who pops it for everybody's turn so we don't waste any time. And it just crushes the vibe. I'm literally that guy and I'm ashamed to say it. But uh, love does not do that. Love has time. Love gives people the time they need to be who they are. Love is patient. And then Paul pairs that up with another positive. Love is kind. And if patience is about time, kindness is about space. If patience is about time, kindness is about space. What's the space around you like to be in? So people enter your orbit. What kind of atmosphere are they enjoying or being drained by? <laughs> A black hole's atmosphere is draining. Kindness is a welcoming atmosphere, hospitality. This is, I only have 45 seconds with you. How can I make this the most enjoyable 45 seconds of your day? You're entering my orbit. That is an entrustment of humanity. Kindness knows how to steward and be hospitable with that space. Love is patient and kind with time and space. And then, and then Paul gets into the eight negatives, what love is not. So this is the black hole. And this gets kind of personal for me in a lot of ways. So here we go. Love does not envy. So what is envy? I'll tell you what it's not. When someone else is thriving, love is able to genuinely say that's amazing. And it celebrates the win, right? Love will experience joy at another person's win. This is the cell multiplying. Being like, yeah, you go. That's amazing. And look at them multiplying over there. I, that's I'm not multiplying now. They are. Yes. Like that is not envy. But if I'm a black hole, I can't rejoice in the good things in your life because all that does is highlight the lack of those things in my own. So by the way, some of us need to delete, I would say, social media. We need to delete that from our phones like yesterday because Instagram is torture for someone who's a black hole. Speaking from experience. Um, whether it's FOMO or like fear of missing out or straight up jealousy, love does not envy Love experiences joy at the good fortune of other people. Uh, and this connects to the next three, you guys. Um, love does not boast. What's boasting? Like bragging. Love doesn't feel the need to drop its own accomplishments randomly into the conversation. Someone talks, you're like, oh yeah, I've read that. They're like, they didn't ask you. Like, <laughs> you just added a detail about your own awareness or knowledge that you weren't asked. That's bragging. It's very subtle, and this is a huge problem for me. To want to connect and to want to relate and to want to be worthy 
in the space I find myself in, I will say, oh, I've been there. I've, you know, I've done that. I've read that book. I've met that person too. I've seen that place you visited. Bragging. Why do we do that? Love keeps the conversation centered on the other, but a black hole keeps inserting its own story. What makes us do that? Next verse. It's not proud. Pride. Love is not arrogant. The Greek word is literally puffed up. Self-inflated. Love doesn't think it's bigger than other people. Which leads to the next one, rudeness. If you think you are the biggest, most valid person in the room, your natural atmosphere will be unkind and write off and dishonor the very valid existence of the other person in your, in your immediate vicinity. And uh, verse five, that leads to dishonoring others. It doesn't, love does not dishonor. This is the inevitable result of black hole life. Being a black hole, you compensate for your envy by inserting your story unsolicited because you have an inflated view of yourself and the result is people are hurt. And this is what love is not, Paul says. And then Paul gives another group of negatives. How, are you guys doing okay? So, okay, good. So Paul, Paul's not done yet with the negatives. Love is not self-seeking. It's not easily angered and it keeps no record of wrongs. These are connected. What does self-seeking mean? Love is not self-seeking. Does that mean you shouldn't work out or like put on deodorant? Of course not. It's a very, very loving thing to do, deodorant. Um, what self-seeking means is love doesn't prioritize my agenda over someone else's. How many of you know someone who really likes their own like routine? Like really a lot. They like their own deal, their own routine, and they really don't like it when you throw off their groove, man. Think of the Cusco and that Disney movie, Emperor's New Groove. You throw off my groove, man. That is self-seeking. That is it. And some of you are like, that's totally me. Like at 8 a.m. every day. <laughs> I, that's totally, that is me. That is me. I don't want my agenda tweaked at the wrong times. You can really tell if this is you when you're interrupted. And this is me. Uh, the word in the Greek Paul uses is touch that ignites, literally touchy. <laughs> Love isn't touchy. <laughs> you become kind of like tiptoeing around this person. Paul uses this phrase, easily angered is touchy. A black hole is touchy. You get right within the line of the event horizon, you're sucked in, you're gone. Um, so maybe you're thinking of someone, but maybe someone is thinking of you right now, right in here. And if, if, I believe my, if I believe my deal is more important than another's, I'm going to be a touchy person. And then the people who cross me, I'm not going to forget that. And that's why it says it keeps no record of wrongs. Love doesn't keep a record of wrongs. But if my agenda is the best thing in the room and it's interrupted, I'm not going to forget you for it. Bitterness will begin building. The root of bitterness will take in your heart. And Paul's like, that's not what love does. That's what a black hole does. It's committed to its own inward suction. And then verse six, Paul gets to the end of the negatives here. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. Okay, 
So at first, some of us are like, oh great, there's one I can do. I hate evil, I love the truth, I fight for the truth, and I protest injustice. I hate evil. And, and, and then Paul's like, do you really hate evil? What about when you're doing all the stuff I just mentioned? Are you hating that you're doing it? Or are you unaware, completely unaware that you're doing it and actually delighting in black holery? <laughs> like, what, what, are you really hating it? And, and Paul's waking us up. He's like, we're supposed to realize we're all bent toward black hole status because we all do this stuff. And right away he says, rejoice in that truth. The confession, the realization is the truth. Rejoice in the, oh my gosh, I'm not like this. I fail like this. Paul's like, bingo. That realization is worth rejoicing over. That realization is worth celebrating. You're seeing your need. Rejoice in that truth. You're confessing. That's confession. If I'm a follower of Jesus, that realization that I'm not like him and I see my lack of love is a moment worth celebrating. That's what we do at the table. That's what we do. And then Paul finishes with verse seven and eight. Here it is. It always protects, which is support. It always trusts. Love believes the best about people, even when they're acting like a black hole. Love believes Jesus can work with them just like he's working in me. Love always hopes for the best. Based on the promise of Jesus in the future, I hope in Christ that he's making you the person he wants you to be, just like he's making me. And love always perseveres. You guys, persevering is hard. Community is hard. Relationships are hard. But love sticks out the emotionally taxing relationships to the end. That's perseverance. In verse eight, love never fails. Love never fails. And if you did great in all 15, that 16th one just got you, you know? <laughs> and so, so that's the 16 descriptions of love. How are you doing now after that? 16 descriptions of love, 16 ways I've pretty much failed creatively over and over the last month. And the good news is we follow a, a God who became human to perfectly live out these things and then step into your black hole and mine to get sucked into our sin and to willingly die in the singularity of my selfishness that I cast upon him and then come out the other side, whatever's on the other side of a black hole. He came out of the grave, destroyed the eternal power of our sin and gives us a space at his table forever. And not only that, until he comes again, he gives us the spirit so that we can live more and more like him. We're not left to our own devices. We're not just left with text. We have text that the spirit gave us and we have the spirit's power to live out what the text says. He has not left us alone in this, you guys. We read these 16 things and we're like, I can't measure up. And then Jesus is like, rejoice. You've just landed on the truth. You've just landed on the truth. And now turn to me. I think of Moses in Numbers setting up the picture of the snake. When snakes are all around, I can't defeat this army of serpents. And just look, just look at the one who took on the snake's poison for you. Look at the one who entered the black hole of your own making and unmade your black hole so that you might become a child of light. This is what we celebrate every Sunday when we gather. We see these 16 things. We grieve how we don't measure up. 
immediately Jesus rushes in, gives us his spirit to make us more faithful. This is Christianity. This is who we are. We belong to Jesus. So picture that cell. When we eat and drink the bread and cup, picture the cell. It's one, one dies, that's Jesus. And then a body is formed. A body multiplies all over the world. Nine months later, one little cell, an egg and a sperm, and then, it di- and then you got this whole human being, whole body with head and arms, every part essential. This is the church, starting with Jesus' own life. And so where do we go from here? We're going to come to the table, you guys. Um, but I just want to say something pastorally. On behalf of the leaders to, to Park Hill, I just want to address the last year. Um, next week will be 52 weeks of COVID. <laughs> so March 8th last year was our last Sunday in that building. I don't know if you're, feels, I don't know if it feels way longer than that or way shorter, but I remember powerful morning of worship. We had a guest from Vista lead worship and we all even, we even came up to the front and gathered in a tight huddle and sang like with no masks. It's like, was that a dream? What was that? And it was beautiful. And then this, this year happened. And so as a church family, I just want to say this year has been hard. Yes, absolutely. And it's been disorienting. When people ask me how I've been, Evan, what's this been like for you as a leader or whatever? I basically say, next time there's a global pandemic and racial unrest, political upheaval, and an election like the one we just had, I'll know what to do. Like next time. Um, It's about all I can say. Like this past year, I learned a lot about myself, how unloving I am. Just the black hole that is Evan, that my wife and team have endured in various ways. I've had to to go multiple therapy and have multiple spiritual coaches on the side and confess to the team and 50 times more confession to my wife than I ever wished. And I learned a lot about myself, how my identity was wrapped up in things that I thought I matured away from, how unloving I am. Um, And I've had to untangle a lot of that. But I've also learned a lot about you. My church family, I learned that we are a way stronger church than I thought we were. I know I speak on behalf of the leadership when I say that. Like we've grown in our commitment of love to each other very measurably. In 2019, we had less than 300 people in committed community groups. Now we have 420. Over COVID, that's the growth in community commitment. Over 420 of you. And um, yeah, And, and also generosity, a commitment to give I've spoken with several of you who are like, I felt compelled by the spirit to reassess my budget and give in a way that is more sacrificial, not less. And we've grown in generosity from 2019 to 2020, the giving is up 30%. That is not, that's not the case everywhere. And I'm, not, and I'm just saying to you, well done in this moment. That is a sign of love, giving of self. That is cellular division and multiplication in the spirit happening through you. 
Um, and I, but I'm not going to sugarcoat it. It has not been all good. I don't want to be that guy that's like, it's all awesome, and we're a lighthouse for San Diego and a beacon on a hill. Victories, I'm not, don't want to do that. I did that at the beginning of COVID, and it was like, kind of. Um, the reality is, you guys, your resilience and commitment to being gracious has been incredible. Uh, you are a loving church. That's number one of two final things. So number one, you're a loving church. And then finally, um, we need to become God's future church. To become God's future church, we have to grow in our capacity to love. We have to. You are loving and you are called to grow in love. We have to be formed more by Jesus' vision of love than culture's vision. 2021, you guys, we just started a whole new decade. These are the, you're welcome to the 20s. We're in the 20s right now. It's been 100 years since the 20s. We're in the 20s. And it's going to be a whole nother kind of 20s. Um, things are going to look different. You know, we like to wonder about masks. When will masks go away and everything? And uh, restaurant closures, most likely they're going to go away at some point sooner than later. And we'll look back on masks and guidelines and travel shaming like this big weird dream. We're like, what was that? That's such a weird time of my life, our life. In many ways, we'll look back and it'll be like weird. Um, but the reality is, you guys, things are changing for the long haul. People are permanently changing the way they live their lives. Picture the New York City skyline, Sleepless in Seattle and every other movie in a city. New York, 90% of those high rises are empty still. People aren't going back to their offices. That changes so much. New York is a flagship in the economy of the U.S. Things will be changing. And society is becoming more globalized and hyper-personalized on devices. And so what does that mean? It means more than ever, our culture is getting to work overtime to form you. To form you and shape your love and your desire and mine. Which means more than ever, if you're a follower of Jesus, someone who's apprenticing and becoming like Jesus, we need intentionality like we've never had before in the way of Jesus to grow in our capacity to love well. I love how Dietrich Bonhoeffer tells his story. You guys know the story of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a pastor in Germany during the rise of the Nazis. And Dietrich realized, whoa, there is a cultural storm approaching of of ideology, Third Reich, Nazism. And, and the only way to shield the church against this is hyper-discipleship. Let's practice the way of Jesus in Germany for the sake of Germany. We love Germany. God loves Germany. Let's be disciples. And so he starts a school called Finkenwald, which is, it was in like the sticks of Poland. And stories of Finkenwald started spreading all over the place. And one young journalist, he's like, this is a crazy school I'm hearing about where Bonhoeffer is just like gnarly, strict Jesus discipleship stories of grueling training in the spirit. And so this, this guy, this historian, his name's Niesel, he goes out to visit Bonhoeffer at Finkenwald. And he's like, what, what are you doing out here? It's unlike anything. And Bonhoeffer takes Niesel up onto a hill where you can see a Nazi training camp on one side and Finkenwald on, on the other. And, uh, wow. And uh, that was cute. I liked it. Little dog. Um, so, so he's up on a hill, Nazi training on one, Jesus training on the other side. And Bonhoeffer basically says this. 
If Christians are going to overcome Nazi influence, quote, it is necessary to propose a superior discipline. In other words, this has to be stronger than that. Bonhoeffer saw the force that was coming at every human heart. And he's like, discipleship in Christ has to be stronger than formation by culture. This is why Paul's writing 1 Corinthians. Our dis- listen, San Diego, listen. Our, dis- our discipleship must be stronger than culture forming us. Loyalty to Jesus has to be stronger than Monday's compromise. So whether it's politics or sexuality or wealth or how to be an influencer, whatever it is, if we are not aggressively and joyfully looking to Jesus for our formation, we are being formed elsewhere. And so we come to the table with an invitation. Are you willing to let God open our eyes to how culture has been forming you and say, Lord, take that back. Have that clutter-filled corner of my heart I've kind of forgotten about on autopilot. Have it all because your authority is good and your love is true. So uh, yeah, let's stand together. We're gonna come to the table with that. And if, you, if we're gonna be God's future church in this world, you guys, the only way forward is aggressive, joyful commitment to Jesus to grow in our capacity to love. So if you could just maybe hold out your hands in a posture of openness to the spirit if you're comfortable and just ask the Holy Spirit, Jesus, are you forming every area of my life? Is the love of Jesus the controlling narrative over all the other narratives? Your authority and goodness is the only authority in government that will last. Your rule. We want to do what you say. We want to do what you say. Bring us into your kingdom in full.